Colossians. The Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Book of Colossians. I used to love it when I was in school when the teacher would answer all the homework questions in class. And I hated it when I didn't realize that's what they were doing until I got home and looked at the homework. I'm going to give you a bit of a hint. I'm giving you some homework answers today in class, in a sense. Uh, we've been passing around these one another booklets. If you don't have one yet, I encourage you to get one. Uh, they're back there by the entrance, right, where, where we come in, so you can grab one as you go out today. One of the things that we're focusing on in recent weeks as a church is spending time with each other in the Word. And it sounds like an intimidating thing to do, to sit down with another believer. What do you, what do, you do? Uh, we have so many questions about the Bible. How in the world can we answer each other's questions about it? Well, that's not necessarily what this is about. Um, the way we're encouraging you to do it, and we've even given you some scripture verses and some place to write in here, as we focus on the one another passages of the New Testament, is to think about light bulb, question mark, and arrow. Very simple. A light bulb, as you read through a passage of scripture, what from that passage kind of stands out to you? Simple enough. Question mark. If, if What questions would you have about what that passage says? What do you not understand? And the arrow is how can you apply that passage? Very simple. Well, I'm giving you some opportunity today. As this morning's sermon is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. In here, somewhere, if I can find it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So if you have one of these with you, as we go through the sermon today, if you're not accustomed to taking notes, here's a good opportunity for you to think, wow, I didn't realize that was in, in the scriptures. I, that that's particularly stands out to me today, and you can write that in there. What in the world does, does the Apostle Paul mean in, in, in his letter to the Colossians by a particular thing that he says? Well, write that down, your question, and how can you apply it? Opportunity to do that today. Grab one of these on your way out. We'll come back to this in a bit. Colossians chapter 3. Before we begin, let me pray for us. Father, we gather here today by your grace and by your mercy as people who have been called out of this world, transferred into the kingdom of your own dear Son. And we pray as we sit under your word today that we would have a greater understanding of the worthiness of Christ and its implications for us as we relate to each other, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been thinking for several days now about an introduction to this sermon, and I don't have one. So you won't get one. So we'll just jump right in. All right? Right into the deep end. The book of Colossians is a beautiful, wonderful book. It exalts and extols Christ in language, which is just mind-boggling more than almost any other letter in the New Testament. The way it describes the worthiness and the value and the majesty and the sovereignty and the deity of Christ is, is really humbling to read. This sermon today, as we look at these things, is going to be in, in many ways sort of a theological foundation for the one another's of the New Testament. This sermon series that we're doing for these four weeks is about the one another's of the New Testament. How are we to treat one another? Paul, well, several of the New Testament authors use that phrase, one another. Do this to one another. Don't do this to one another. Well, why? 
Are we just building an ethical system of, of how we're to live? No, there's reasons for it. And that reason is rooted in the majesty and the worthiness and the value and the beauty of Christ, which we'll see as we go. But the central sort of doctrine that I want you to understand today is something called union with Christ. Union with Christ. When you, be, when, when you become a believer, you are united with Christ. I don't, I don't, I heard it said this week, and I believe this is kind of overstatement, but I heard it said this week, don't invite Jesus into your life. Your life is a wreck. Be grateful that Jesus invites you into his. Simplify, but good point. When we come to Christ, we are united with him. We join in him. And all the benefits that we receive in our salvation, of our being forgiven and declared not guilty, of our adoption into the family of God, of our justification, of our being declared righteous, all of the stuff that we get when we come to Christ is because we are united to him. It is nothing that we bring. It is all of him. Your standing before God in Christ is because of Christ's standing before the Father. Your growth and righteousness and becoming Christ-like is because you are united to a very Christ-like Christ. All that we have in Christ is because we are united with him. A man named John Murray once said, this is the central truth of the entire doctrine of salvation. It is the source of our justification. All the truth about us insofar as we are, uh, of our standing before God is because we are united with him. Our position before God is because we are united with him. Look at what some of Paul says in the book of Colossians about how we are united with Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his own beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. In him you have been made complete. So in him we have forgiveness, redemption. In him we are made complete. Look at chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead and you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, together with him, united with him. He has made you alive, having forgiven all of your transgressions. All that you have in Christ is not of your own doing. You bring nothing all of him. Any standing you have before God as a child of God is because of your union with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I now live in the flesh, Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. All I have is because of him. It's his life. Look what Paul has to say about the nature 
of who Christ is, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And these are just incredible verses. As we read these verses in chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, see if you can count all the things he says about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Christ and for Christ. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, God to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, this is the Christ to whom you have been united. That in your salvation, there is a union, an inseparable union between you and the Creator Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, this is the Christ to whom you have been united. Chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's the Christ to whom you have been united. Union with Christ then is the the source of everything that you have in your salvation. All the truth that's been declared about you is because you are united to the Christ who has achieved it. Any righteousness, any growth in Christ-likeness, any holiness that you may have is Christ's Life through us. Have I made my point yet? John 15 says that we are the branches. He is the vine. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We must abide in him. So because Christ is all of that, because Christ is above all of all things, don't be given to anything less. This is the argument that Paul has in the book of Colossians. He sets Christ forward as as supremely valuable, infinitely worthy, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, beautiful beyond description, sovereign over all of creation. He presents Christ as God himself. And then says, because Christ is all of these things, don't give yourself to anything less. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Why? Because any of the philosophies of this world, even if they seem to make sense, are less worthy than Christ himself. 
any of the traditions of this world, the, the deceptive nature of, of the things of this world, are all less than Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. He tells us not to, to be given to legalism because that's less than Christ. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbath day. The substance, he says, is Christ. Don't give yourself to lesser things. Chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Don't give yourself to, to false religions. Verses 20 and 23. Don't give yourself to you know, asceticism. Don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. All of this is less than Christ. C.S. Lewis says that the reason we are so tempted to these things is because we are too easily satisfied. He says we, we are content to continue making mud pies in a slum because we don't understand what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. So if you find yourself struggling with lesser things, valuing philosophies and traditions and legalism, things more than you value Christ himself, if you struggle with giving yourself to lesser things, I think it's probably because you don't understand who Christ is. We are content to continue making, as C.S. Lewis said, the guy who wrote Chronicles of Narnia and all that, we are content to continue making mud pies in a slum because we don't understand a better offer. We don't understand what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the beach. So all of that's background of leading up to chapter 3. He sets Christ forward as infinitely worthy and valuable and perfectly holy and righteous and beautiful and creator God of the universe and encourages them, don't give yourself to lesser things. Why would you trade him for this? He is better than these things. And you have been united with him. The supremely valuable person of the universe. You have been united with him. And so he is all you need. And in truth, he is all you have. So I have very four, four very simple points for you today as we look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. First point is, Jesus is your life. Jesus is your life. Second, Jesus is your life, so purge sin from your body. Third, Jesus is your life, so purge sin from the body of Christ. And then fourth, Jesus is your life. (laughs) All right, so those are my four points. All right, they kind of bookend together. They all basically say the same thing, but that's okay. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, if then you have been raised up with Christ. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? I think so. Look at what it says elsewhere. Chapter 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ, which you have if you have been united with him. Chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him. 
chapter 3, verse 1, if you have been raised up with him, and back to chapter 2, verse 12, you then live with him. So in your union with Christ, you've been united with him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his life. All that he achieved in his sacrifice for sin becomes yours. That's how he, you can be declared not guilty. All that he achieved by his perfect life becomes yours. His victory over death and his resurrection becomes yours. So he says in chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Keep seeking. Continual action. This idea of this should be an ongoing habit for you. The pattern of your life is that you are seeking after the things of Christ. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking, continue seeking, continual action, pattern of life, the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Chapter 2, uh, verse 2. Set your mind then on things above. That's a command. Set your mind. He's telling you what to do. Set your mind on the things above. Not on the things that are on the earth. Your translation may say something about, uh, something like, be content, be intent on the things above. The idea here is that your life ought to be intentional about pursuing Christ. Intentional about pursuing Christ. Disciplined about pursuing Christ. Purposeful about pursuing Christ. Continue seeking the things above. Set your mind on the things above. Why? Verse 3, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. I think before I came to Christ, I would not have liked this verse. You have died. You have died. Why? How? What is the penalty of sin? Ultimately, death, judgment. And that penalty has been paid for us in Christ. His death becomes our death to sin. If you are united with him, your old man has died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now there is a sense, and Paul says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that we die daily. I understand that. Um, so I think there's there's two separate ways to look at this. That, that positionally before God, what is true about us as God looks at us is that our old sinful man, dead, gone. Sin is paid for. He looks at us, sees the life of Christ. But our experience of that is ongoing. We are slowly becoming, in our daily experience, what has been declared to be true about us. So yes, in Christ we have died, and our life is now hidden with Christ in God, but there is a very real sense in which we die daily. As we seek to, to follow after him, we have to you know, put to death the sins of our flesh, and we have to try and, to put it simply, listen to the guy in the white cowboy hat rather than the black one. Right? There's a very real struggle within us of wanting to return to our sin and wanting to be delivered from it. I realize that. 
But the promise of God in Christ for you is that the victory is won. You may continue to struggle with it in this life, but the victory is won. The victory is won. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. There it is. When Christ, who is our life, for me, as I went through this, that's my light bulb. On your one another guide. Light bulb, question mark, arrow. For me, it's Christ is my life. Man, that stands out to me these days. All that I have, all that I could ever hope to have of any eternal value, any standing that I have before God is because of the Christ to whom I am united. I do not gain any eternal reward for anything I do on my own strength. It is not of my achievement. It is because of Christ's achievement. And I am united with him. He is my life. He is my He is my all. Hallelujah. Brother, let's sing that next week. So first point, he is our life. He is your life. He is my life. I spend so much of my time trying to build my career to become one of these uber superstar librarians. spent so much of my life, my time trying to build my life. And we should. We should work hard. But in the end, Christ is my life. He is my all. He is your life. Second point. Because he is your life, then put to death the sin of your body. Look at verse 5. It says, therefore, because of this, because he is your life, because you have been raised up with him, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body, right? Consider your, your body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Wow. That's harsh. Because you have been united with Christ, the most supremely valuable thing in the universe who has accomplished all that you need for your standing before God, you have been united with Him. Why then settle for lesser things? Why then desire to live as if you are not united to Him? Consider the members of your earthly body, lowercase b, our body, as dead. The immorality, the word there is talking about sexual immorality, about fornication, and the picture of of a union between a husband and a wife, the picture of of what happens when two become one. And Paul Paul says elsewhere that a marriage is a picture of, of the union of Christ and his church. When we take that imagery and flush it down the toilet, That is not indicative of one 
of a life that has been united with Christ. Impurity. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse seven. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Our calling in Christ is, is to grow in Christ's likeness. So you, as we read through this list here, your translation may have different words, but it says the same thing. Immorality, impurity, passion. And this is passion for passion's sake. It's okay to be passionate about the right things. The word used here is orge. Evil desire. Desire is good. God has granted us. God has created us with the capacity to desire things. In this life, we are to desire for the day when the crud of this life is no more. We are to desire and long for the day when Christ returns. We are to desire the age when all of the pain and the suffering of this world will be no more. We are to desire the time when we can see our Savior face to face. Desire and longing is a good thing if it's for the right thing. Evil desire is what he has here. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. James chapter 4 tells us it's a, that, that's the desire to, to have more. A lack of contentment with what you've been given. And I think that the passion here, the evil desires here, both lead to greed. And then he says those things amount to idolatry. Why? Because you're wanting something more than you want Christ. The logical and next question then is, is he enough for you? If he was all you had, would you have enough? I want to say yes. And some days I want to want to say yes. Paul's point here is these things, not that they are not a part of our lives, because we continue to struggle with sin as we are Christians and we grow in Christ, but we should recognize them for what they are. They are a part of a life that seeks to be in rebellion against God. Do you nurture that? Do you feed that? Verse 6 is on account of these things, these desires to rebel against God, these desires to desire something more than God. It is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and some of your translations may say, upon the sons of disobedience. I think that's a helpful clarification. I think it's it, the point here is that these things are rebellion against God, and God sees that as disobedience, sin, and it must be punished. It must be quelled. Verse 7, and in these things, you also once walked. So the idea is that these things were the pattern of life. These things were the, the what marked us. This was our nature once in the past. It's a part of the believer's past. 
in these things you once walked, when you were living in them, ongoing action, pattern of life. But now, something's changed. That was then. This is now. What has changed? But now you also put them aside. First point, Jesus is your life. Second, Jesus is your life, so put to death then the sins of the body. Set your mind on him. Pursue him. Do not be content to remain in a life of rebellion against him. Third point, Jesus is your life, so put to death the sins of the body. Capital B, body of Christ. And what he gets to now are these sins which which aren't just matters of the heart, of desire, but in particular are sins which are manifest between believers, between people. Anger. It's so easy to be angry. But the root of anger is pride. How dare you do that to me? The Bible does describe a kind of righteous anger. Angry that the name of God has been insulted. I don't know that I've ever experienced that in a pure way. Yes, I've been angered that the things of God have been profaned, but some of that's because it hurts my pride. Anger. Wrath. What's the difference between anger and wrath? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Again, this, this idea, this wrath has this idea of anger with passion. Anger with passion. Anger which is expressed and experienced by another. My anger towards Trevor becomes wrath when he experiences my anger. I think that's the heart. I'm not angry with you, brother. I love you. Anger, wrath, malice is the third one. Moral evil is the idea there. Moral evil. Slander. Slander. The word used there is where we get our word blaspheme. (laughs) What's blasphemy? Slander against God. Can we slander each other? Yes. Yes, we can. James, chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. James, chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. James says, No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be this way, James says. What then is slander? It's abusive speech toward each other. These things are social sins. These are public sins. Kill them. Kill them. This is the struggle of a Christian. 
of putting to death our old man, whom God has declared has already died. So from his eternal perspective, that victory is won. But we still struggle daily in achieving what has already been declared to be true about us. For those of us in Christ, his victory is ours because we are united with him. But we still struggle in our experience of, of dealing with anger and malice and the desire to slander, make ourselves look better. We still struggle with greed and we still struggle with pride. But the difference is, he says, these were the pattern of our life before. Did you catch that? In them you once walked and were living in them. This was the pattern of your life. This was your ongoing action. This was the way that you lived. The difference is that now because we are united with Christ, we are no longer content to remain in it. You may still struggle with anger, but you hate it that you're angry. You may be tempted toward pride, but you call out, Lord, save me from this. The pattern of your life becomes one of repentance, not one of contentment to remain in it. Do you see the difference? So Jesus is your life. And because Jesus is your life, then kill these sins which are part of your body. Kill these sins which are part of tempting to become part of the body of Christ. Verse 9. And then finally we get to the point of the sermon and why this passage is in the one another booklet. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another. I mean, sure, that's clear, right? Lying is wrong. Lying is wrong. We know that. But he's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers in the church. He says, don't lie to one another in the church. As we go through these one another's, you're going to realize our responsibility to pray for one another. You're going to realize our responsibility to hold one another accountable. You're going to realize our responsibility to, to encourage one another. Do you realize that along with that comes the truth that if you are not honest with the other believers in the fellowship of Christians, they cannot be faithful to encourage you and pray for you. You see that? If I sit down with Andy and say, "Okay, Andy, let's let's pray together. Let's, let's talk to her. How are things going?" Peachy. Things are great. I'm not at all discouraged. And if the reality behind that is that he's about to throw in the towel, What good is our time together? Yes, there is such a thing as an individual walk with Christ. You need to know him. You need to know him intimately. You need to know him personally. You need to spend time alone with him and his word. You need to pray with him yourself. But do you realize the way that God leads you often in this life, the way that God ministers to you often in this life is through other believers? The pattern in the New Testament is that there is no such thing as a John Wayne Christian, a Lone Ranger Christian, 
Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, Christian. Brother, I watched a John Wayne movie last night, so I'm not killing John Wayne here, okay? But the pattern is that you are a part of the voice of God in my life as you seek to be faithful to him and speak the word of God into my life. If I am not honest with you about where my life stands, I can't. then you can't be faithful to some extent, right? I mean, you can't be held accountable beyond what you have opportunity for, but you can't then speak, pray for me on these weaknesses. And it reveals something else about me. It means I'm putting up a, a, a false facade. It means I'm trying to build a picture of me that I want you to see. It's more important that you perceive me as something than that you actually see the progress of Christ in my life. That is pride. Do not lie to one another. Why? Because you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So if you're going to live together as Christians, then be Christian. Don't bring the habits of a life in rebellion against God into your relationship with other Christians. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. If I can get there, that's New Testament, right? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might, might increase? May it never be. How shall we who, decide, uh, who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Now he's not saying here, if you're a Christian, how dare you sin? He's saying, if you're a Christian, how can you be content to continue living in a life marked by habitual rebellion against God? marked by desiring an image that you build for other believers to see, rather than being humble enough to let others see the work of Christ in your weakness. Light bulb? Oh, by the way, that last, that fourth point is Jesus is your life could have guessed that do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on a new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him a renewal in which there is no distinction between greek and jew circumcised uncircumcised barbarian scythian slave and freeman but christ is all in all it's about him you make it about anything less than him you make it about yourself then you don't understand the value of Christ. What's the light bulb in this for you? Obviously, given my four points, the light bulb for me is Jesus is our life. That's what stands out to me. A logical question that comes of this then is if Jesus is my life, what happened to my old one? How does that work? It's a good question to ask. It's a good question to ask your pastor. Good question to investigate the rest of Scripture on. That's the whole point of the question mark. Arrow's application. This is an easy one for application. He gives several commands. He says, set your mind on the things above. That could be your arrow. Do not lie to one another. That could be your arrow. 
You may be curious about the title of the sermon today, if any of you actually read it. An Ark for All God's Noahs. I have to confess I'm guilty of plagiarism here. This is the title of a sermon from a man who who died about 330 years ago, so I don't really think he's going to care that I stole the title of his sermon. An Ark for All God's Noahs was a sermon preached by Thomas Brooks. It's about a 250-page sermon (laughs) on one verse from Lamentations. It has a fairly long title, but it's some, the next couple of words are an ark for all God's Noah's on a gloomy day. The idea here is that Christ is our vessel of salvation. He is our vessel of deliverance from judgment. All of these things which were once the pattern of our lives and against which we still struggle at times provoke the judgment of God, and rightly so, if they did not, then God would not be holy and just. But for us, Christ is the ark into which we climb to be delivered from that judgment. It falls on him. It falls on him. How then can we be anything but grateful and rejoice with the others on the ark? I think that's what Paul's getting at. If you have experienced the deliverance from judgment in Christ, how can you be anything but grateful and rejoice with the others who have been united to that same Christ? How can we belittle our Savior by belittling other believers, brothers and sisters united to the same Christ? I know that this sermon today had a lot of don't-dos in it. The passage continues, though, and we will look at that next week with a lot of the do's in it. I encourage you, though, not to view this passage as something which is just a list of stuff that you have to don't do, which you don't have to do, have to don't do it. Don't view these as lists. Don't set your mind on a pattern of things to accomplish. Don't try to defeat the sin in your life on your own. Set your mind where? On the things above where Christ is. Look to him. If you constantly look inward at your own sin, you will spiral down discouraged with no assurance of what Christ has done. The assurance of your salvation in Christ comes not by looking inward. It comes by looking at Christ. His word is steadfast. We sang it earlier. I hope you find that comforting. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider what the implications are for us of of a Christ who is all things, a Christ who is our life, a Christ who is infinitely worthy and supremely valuable, a Christ who is perfectly holy and righteousness, beautiful beyond description, sovereign over all creation, that this Christ has united us to him 
and that all the benefits that he has secured for us in his life and in his death and in his resurrection become ours by virtue of our union with him? Lord, as we ponder these things, would our reaction be humility? Would our reaction be rejoicing? Would our reaction be gratitude? Defeat in us a desire for things which are lesser. We pray these things in Christ's name.